Welcome back, my little plum puddings. It is Stephen Hussey here. I'm joined by the effervescent, the joyful, the ebullient George Taylor. Hello, George. Hi there. You can hear that pep in the voice, pep in the step, <laughs> drum in the tum. Uh, um, plum puddings. Plum puddings. Christ. Uh, uh, so uh, it's been a been a while since we caught up properly, George, and I'm a uh, I'm nestled in London. Um, people know I sort of over COVID have done a few little hops back and forth between my parents and here, but I feel like I, your audience hear a lot more from you than I do, really. I mean, I think we only catch up on these podcasts now, don't we? Good point. Unless you, I, I mean, your YouTube channel, you've got, yeah. if someone, someone follows you on all your platforms, they're getting it. Had to uh, mouth, aren't they? That's true, guys. Uh, if you don't already, I have a bloody <laughs> <laughs> that's how you turn a sort of you know slightly barbed comment into a sort of teachable salesman <laughs> if you don't know already guys i got a bloody youtube channel <laughs> so uh go and check that out it's uh appropriately named stephen hussey so very creative my name, my name is not anywhere near it george is not in it but, not but in this podcast does get promoted in the description so there you go okay. um it's okay. all a lovely web so go and check those out um I've been doing this YouTube course, George. I've I finished yeah, yeah, yeah. it. I think we spoke when you okay when you started. You you all the way through, are you? Yeah, I finished the final week. I'm still like you have the members area and access to all the people on it, but the actual official course is finished. Um, it was very. Is that why your room? I'm looking at you now. Your room's done up into fairy lights and soft bedding. Is that why your room now looks like sort of Zoella's room? It's not in fairy lights. It's more attractive than usual, though. I, one of the things they talk about on the course is your sort of aesthetics and getting them right for like your not only your channel, but like, you know, your background and how it like vibe basically of the channel. But obviously What's a lot of candelabra in the foreground. <laughs> That's a coconut water. Oh, OK. Um, All right. I genuinely thought it was a candelabra. That'd be good, wouldn't it? But people, one of the things like because you get mentors on the course and one of the things was they were often talking about and the mentors have pretty big YouTube channels, but they talk about how they would have something in the background often that was often like a fun thing for the, for the people who follow regularly to spot or notice or like, but obviously they've gone through many iterations and everyone mostly pretty much starts YouTube channels from their bedroom. So they sort of use what they can, but there was like a guy who basically just for like, his first hundred videos just had different cereal boxes in the background because he had nothing else of interest sort of plop in there. So it'd just be right. different cereal boxes. And I was related to his content at all. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. But um he has got markedly better now. But yeah, I was just thinking what 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 would my cereal boxes be? I, yeah. I mean, I was thinking, I don't know. I was thinking like you could I've got little books and objects. I've got a little rows pillow here that that sort of That's makes some of it it's nice. not doing much for me that to be honest <laughs> uh i could you know could i just sort of have something green screened on the back like a, a sort of they video game play? i feel like green screens always look a bit, bit yeah, they, they do don't they I, I mean it's probably done a million times but just the books just some books always makes you look a bit smarter you can talk about them you're probably talking about books in your content it's easy isn't it it is easy george but but is it is it a characteristic of my wacky personality? <laughs> what, what else we're we gonna have up there, Steve? <laughs> that's what I need you for. That's what I'm thinking. You want uh, me up on the wall? 
like a wacky <laughs> figure. If we still live together, I'd just have a pair of your underpants strung across <laughs> the background. A different pair every week. Different pair each week, yeah. For those who don't know, George has a lot of pairs of underwear. Um, Where are we going with that? Come on, we're not. That's just, that's just the truth. Clean. Just keep them clean and on rotation. Yeah. But I'm just saying you have a, a large amount. You've been known to have a large amount of them. I think they take up a lot of room. I don't necessarily think there's that many pairs. They're just quite voluminous. And and this is a digression, guys. But for those of you who don't know, George, those of you who definitely don't know, George has, in the face of many advances and changes in the underpant garment, George has resolutely stuck with the sort of large billowy boxer in just completely contrary to any modern trend in sort of, you know... Sexy. Whatever FHM's telling yeah. you, just what, I'm not changing. Whatever sort of Dolce and Gabbana are pushing these days, these little tight pants, George just went, no. He went straight... He's just stuck resolutely with a sort Whereas of... Whereas you're what you're squeezed in like David Beckham, are you? Uh, am I... No, I'm a I'm boxer brief guy. Boxer, boxer brief, yeah. I mean, I just feel like that's a bit of a halfway house. Just... It is. It's, it's the Goldilocks. <sighs> Do you think? Yeah. I've tried a couple of times. So I've never been too impressed, to be honest. Well, fair each, enough. Each to their own, I suppose. Um, so I I am sort of <laughs> nestled. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, carry on, carry on. Just thinking of smooth transitions here. Um, yeah. Well, it's just you said I'm nestled. I wonder <laughs> I, I am nestled here in London and I sort of have made, I'm close, George, to making an executive decision that it feels like the gods don't want me to bother with travel this year either. Um, it's all, I looked internationally, at Internationally, you mean? Internationally. I looked at the, the, the Times had this article basically saying how much of a hassle is travel. And they sort of listed a few common locations you go to from London, like Portugal, Spain, France. And there was all just like, you'll need this test 72 hours before you'll have to have this certificate of proof of a COVID thing. And when you get there, it's basically masks indoors, a lot of these places. And yeah. it's just, there's just, it just looks like a lot. Of you don't want to end up wearing a mask on a beach. Do you? you don't want to be in that <laughs> sort of situation, which I think is happening in some places yeah. or great expense as well to be underwhelmed. Italy has something where you have to might inform the local health authority that you're going to be in that town or something. It's, it just seems, it just, I just thought, I'll oh, forget it. Like, tell me when it's, tell yeah. me when it's easy and I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. It is when travel, like easy breezy travel is, yeah. The nature of that changes, doesn't it? It just defeats the point. Um, so yeah, but I'm, I'm booked in tomorrow. No, Sunday, I think for the fully, fully vaccinated second second appointment so kind of ticking that box off but you're you're would you be able to travel before that right no you you have to have like that you have to be fully vaccinated about 14 days before traveling i think um so even that is yeah you have to wait but i kind of i'm kind of enjoying you know um i don't enjoy like concert lockdowns but the simplicity of being like it's summer in London. It's a nice time in the city, mm-hmm. but maybe I'm just really going to sink in and just just sort of enjoy revel being in the city and sort of just. So are you booked in? So are you staying there indefinitely? Then 
I'm staying here for now. Um, yeah, I've got an Airbnb. I'm I'm looking for maybe longer term rentals, but I mean, yeah, it just it just feels like we're now at a time where planning travel just seems complete. Planning anything like that for six months just seems completely pointless. It's just you can't. Yeah. I thought this time last year we were probably chatting, thinking, well, this time next year it'll be all gravy on yeah. that front, but. Yeah. Um, hasn't worked out it's very difficult it's very difficult um yeah factoring in the chances that you get to a place and then they might pull the rug out from under you you might have to quarantine when you return lots of things like that make it very difficult we we can't leave the us as things stand um so yeah we've got things that we're supposed to be back in the uk for that currently don't look viable maybe that will change but it's very hard so i think everyone's understanding of that fact but I'm very fortunate where we are here that we have a lot to explore within the, the confines of the US. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite a different beast for me, really. We can um, fairly get up and go and go and see stuff. And it feels like going on a vacation within the country, which maybe in England, your options are a bit, you know, there's lots of great places to go within the UK, but your options are a lot more limited, I suppose. Yeah, and you're, you're doing a bit of road tripping, right? We are, we are setting off uh, tomorrow morning. Um, this is the 16th of July. We're setting off tomorrow morning and we are driving coast to coast and back, um, which is quite a big undertaking. But um, yeah, it feels like, especially just hearing what you're saying there kind of reaffirms that while we've got the option to do something like that, we should really take it, I think. So uh, yeah, it's quite an exciting, exciting trip. Yeah, the US are so, I mean, very spoiled for internal travel. Like, if you just decide to sort of hunker in the US, you can do a lot of different stuff. That's it. You, you know, you just sort of throw our bags in the back of our car and we can go anywhere. So, um, yeah, you don't really don't need to book anything. We've got a hotel sorted for the first three or four nights. We're going straight, we're going across to Chicago to start with. Then after that, we'll just be kind of playing it by ear, really. So, um, yeah, kind of sleeping sleeping in motels that's an exotic thing to do if you're not from america i think the novelty will wear off quite quickly when it's not you know not clean but um yeah that's that's the plan this is something i was thinking george what age is the worst age to have been over the last year or two oh just in during the pandemic who's been most stitched up age-wise yeah, who apart from let's put aside people who are obviously vulnerable. Like if you're 80. Yeah, sure. You're, sure if you're 80, yeah. it's not yeah. been, it's not been great times. But if you're, you know, say you're like 50 to uh, 50 and under, who's sort of who do you think sort of been most stitched up by it? I would say and this is very much skewed by where I've been living and kind of the milieu of which I've been in for a while, but if you signed up for maybe a one-year masters program and you've done a lot of very hard work to get in on it or anyone that's not really age specific i suppose but yeah being like a young person with a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity and that's been kind of stifled i think i've seen a lot of the fresh university here in the us have had the whole first year completely written off and they've spent the last three or four years doing every extracurricular activity possible to earn a spot at a very prestigious ivy league school and then it's kind of taken away from you but you get the next couple of years hopefully to make it back i think being yeah young young either final year of high school or early university or 
yeah, maybe a grad program that you've worked super hard to get into. Yeah, if we're talking about people who are, you know, dying as a result of it, then I think that would be a very disappointing thing to miss out on because they're very formative experiences. You make a lot of great friends and you might just have that whole whole experience taken away from you. Um, yeah, I think I think that um, is my my position. You, what do you think? Yeah, I think I thought the same. I thought like last year of school, like would be massively disruptive if you had that. Mm. The, everything feels very high pressure then, and you're like going from figuring out what your next step is after school, saying goodbye to a whole piece of your life, and yeah. trying to decide next. And like if you were just getting to uni. And you kind of miss like that. It's just like high socializing point of your yeah, life in terms it, yeah. of lots of uh, social contact and meeting people and making decisions. I reckon if you were, oh, you if you were like thirteen, you had the absolute sweet spot of pure gold. You were old enough to appreciate that you're off school and yeah. you basically nothing was that important. You yeah, school doesn't matter that much then, does it? Yeah, I reckon if you were thirteen, you literally spent a year playing Fortnite and had a blast. <laughs> you just like you just watch YouTube and played Fortnite and had an absolute, absolute cracker. Yeah, and I suppose you don't need to be like handheld by your parents as much. Yeah, you're kind of old enough to freewheel a bit more. Um, you've got plenty of time to make it up, haven't you? As well, so yeah, that that probably is true. But um, yeah, I I feel we got a little like we got a bit lucky in that we had kind of we've kind of gone through all the uni days and the twenties days. It's obviously like we maybe missed a bit of things we'd like to do but I feel like this was actually for me where it was a time where I was keeping my head down quite a lot anyway it wasn't it wasn't too bad I would have liked to have spent a year gallivanting about a bit more but I don't know I just I kind of sunk into this now and it's like I've started you can make the best of it can't you yeah I probably position. doing this YouTube channel has probably been part of the consequence of like oh, I ain't got that much to do I'm just yeah. gonna do it do a channel but yeah if you if you were 19 and you it had just sort of taken away the things that you'd worked hard for because they're finite experiences right you you can delay doing your work or going on travels we can do them next year but you can't you can't defer most of the people haven't been able to defer their degree program they've just had to have a really bad first year of it so I think that's the real kicker is when it's not something you can push down the road that has just actually been affected and you won't ever get that back. Yeah. Um, Tough. Well, you guys will look, you guys will probably now destroy your 20s in a sort of hedonistic <laughs> attempt attempt to recover from COVID. Yeah. And it'll all be it'll all be fine. Um, yeah, or you'll all or you'll all make YouTube channels and do very well. So either way yeah oversaturated now <laughs> yeah too many young youtube channels now um so you you're not you're not gonna vlog your road trip uh i'd be very surprised um who knows what could happen but um yeah i, I wouldn't hold out for it um what are you uh what have you been you know getting your nose in a few books a few films what you've been well, i've started i've on? kind of lined up four or five quite you know, not on the nose, but American road trip novels I've got lined up to read as I go. So I've just started today a Saul Bellow, um, Humboldt's Gift. He's the kind of archetype Chicago novelist, I suppose, and it's set there. So I thought that would be a good one to get things moving with. 
he won the Pulitzer Prize in the seventies. Saul um, Bellow's one. I, Saul Bellow's one that I weirdly have a hard time getting into, even though hundred percent agree. I know he's a good writer, and there's people I like who like him a lot. But every time I I find his novels, I have to work a lot to want to finish them. Completely agree, and I'm slightly worried that this book's going to take me forever. <laughs> and I'll have read seventy pages by the time we've gotten home, and that'll be it. It yeah, he he writes in a. The voice of his characters seems to be the most important thing, and if you don't quite latch onto that voice, you feel quite lost in the book. In the books of his I've read so far, this one's had quite a nice opening, um, so I'm the most optimistic for it. But yeah, he's certainly the biggest name writer that I have the hardest time with. Uh, but yeah, let's let's see what happens. Um, so he's coming along with you. What's another? What's another stop? Well, something I finished just before this one that was really good um, was a non-piece of non-fiction called Roads Driving the Great American Highways. So very, very spot on by Larry McMurtry, who wrote Lonesome Dove, which I think I mentioned on this channel a couple of, on this podcast a couple of episodes ago, also on the Pulitzer Prize. And he adapted um, and won the Oscar for adapting uh, Brokeback Mountain. He's a real novelist of the West. And he wrote Terms of Endearment, which was the Oscar winning film. Um, and yeah, he, I think at the turn of the millennium, so like late 1999, he drove a lot of the big roads and the big interstates in the US to just kind of talk about how travel has really changed and how it's just so convenient to get across the country compared to when he was a child growing up on a ranch, riding a horse, you know, six hours to go and get the post there and back. And now you can be 750 miles in, sort of 15 hours driving. Um, really interesting and it just kind of set the tone for what we're going to do so that was cool i'd recommend people look out for any of his stuff really um other things i've got to take with me i don't read too many collections of essays i feel like maybe you read more of those than i do this is quite a cult collection from maybe 20 years ago it's called Pulphead. i've forgotten the author's name already but i think he writes for the new yorker or he's written for the you know plenty of like literary magazines and it's just kind of kooky takes on different American crazy goings on. It's supposed to be good and, yeah, interested in that. I have an early Jonathan France novel to take with me, The 27th City, um, which I think is set in whatever The 27th City is in the US, I've forgotten, but it feels like a good Midwest America read, and I wanted to read that before his latest book comes out. Um, St. Louis, I think it's set in. Right. Um, and we'll be going through there at some point. And I have another book called The Meadow by James Galvin. I think the author's name is. It's uh, a history of an area told through the changing of a meadow in kind of Utah, Colorado. It's supposed to be a very evocative novel of the American West that I'm excited to read. So I think they're the, they're the books I'm taking with me on the trip, mm. but who knows how much I'll get read. You mentioned St. Louis. I've seen that touted a lot as a kind of, you know, like there's a there's a sort of uh, a sort of liberal tech Twitterati who are often sort of touting the next sort of best American mm. cities that aren't San Francisco yeah. uh, because of San Francisco's sort of exorbitant living costs. And uh, St. Louis often gets thrown. Miami comes up a lot these days because yeah. that's becoming its own weird tech thing, but. St. Louis sometimes gets thrown around as this, like, it's not big enough to have become a sort of decadent US city, but 
it's got enough size that it is has kind of like you know nice facilities of a metropolis mm. uh yeah i'll be interested to see i'll, I'll let you know i'll let you know what the wi-fi is like <laughs> and obviously there's like it's very played out now, but like Austin, Texas obviously comes up a lot, but that's sort yeah. Of, yeah. I uh, mean, Florida, the Florida city, like the guys inviting companies over, isn't he? It's like, what can I do to make it worth your while to mm-hmm. relocate here? Um, I want, yeah, I want there's so many factors like you know, state taxes and stuff. Different cities have different advantages in that sense, but yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. I think it's really hard to organic, like to, sorry, artificially form those like new, clusters like i was re- i was listening to some podcasts and someone was talking about how if you look at certain epochs in history let, let's say sort of uh flourishing like moments in history they were often like highly localized and tied to a location like there was a there was a moment in the industrial revolution in 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 england in maybe like london and manchester or there was like a moment in vienna when you had mozart and bach and and this flourishing of like you know science and stuff and you know just these different pockets throughout history of florence obviously with da vinci and all the artists and scientists and and silicon valley i guess in the 20th i suppose there's a difference between an artistic one and a business one right because i suppose the industry business ones are tied to I don't know, the port where all the cotton came in was in Manchester. So all of the technology around cotton gins and making equipment for that would be located around there or Silicon Valley, two or three companies start making computer equipment and then those people make new companies. It kind of spawns that way, right? Whereas now, I suppose, I don't know, it's a bit easier to just start a company from anywhere if you're not making something tangible, but you're probably going to be a web developer or a programmer or a coder so the likelihood is you'll be coming from an area where that stuff was already big yeah i wonder if we'll ever lose the cluster effect like i feel like now more than ever it's poised to potentially break like it's amazing how long in a weird way we've moved quickly but in another weird way when i think of how only now in 2021 and last year did something happen with like remote work where it became so uh, talked about and bigger? In a way, I think like, wow, why didn't this happen much, much sooner? Because the technology was there since like Skype, but, you know, and Zoom and Zoom has been around for 10 years. And it, in a way, I'm like surprised the internet didn't push us there faster. But only now, perhaps we will see like and now so many people are more okay and accustomed to remote work maybe we'll see like remote remote clusters be more of a thing or or just more mobileness of labor like where the internet dream was always that labor would become like massively mobile and the kind of confusing thing was how little it actually happened like Mm. so maybe now we'll start to accelerate that trend more and it'll become more of a thing we'll see i mean it's certainly company i work with for is completely mobile your company's very mobile right so depend yeah it depends on the sector and and tangible your product is i guess yeah and i guess it is how how much talent like young talent becomes demanding of it as a perk they want in their job which it may become like companies compete for that but uh, yeah that's that's one of the big things i think could change an enormous amount about just the way that 
companies form and the way that I don't know cultures come together that is only now just starting to actually be realized in an interesting way um but yeah yeah we'll see um I have been I'll tell you what I have read George I read uh our old friend Elena Ferrante uh, which recently. which novel we're talking I read her novel Days of Abandonment, which I thought was excellent. Um, really tightly focused. It's short. It's probably like just under 200 pages, but it's such a tightly focused character, not character study, but a, a study of a particular situation where a woman just gets immediately in the first page is abandoned by her husband. And it's basically her coming from a fairly sort of traditional background in Naples, dealing with her terror of I'm going to be this bereft, abandoned woman, and that's a terrible fate. And her sort of trying to deal with that, come to terms with him leaving her for a younger woman. And it was just so, so tightly written. And so there was just like no fat in the novel it felt very yeah. it felt very strict to like okay she she did the job in 200 pages explored it thoroughly and elena ferrante has this way of writing that makes it just seem very easy it's just like oh there it is it's so simple like yeah okay. it's almost if if they weren't as good and easy to read as they are you would say that's maybe the best place for someone to start with her work but then you're kind of doing a disservice to that the four novels that make up the Neapolitan quartet, right? Mm. Because you don't you don't almost need to be eased in once you start those, you're going to stick with them anyway. But it is a very if you've got you can't commit as much time, maybe it's a great sort of standalone that still has the same mood and texture as her bigger pieces, but yeah, really distilled. There's a great well, it's not as good. There's some interesting biographical information around it that um we could maybe go into or not, but um, the Italian author Domenico Strattoni or Strattoni, I'm obviously butchering his name, but the novel is called Ties. It's published by the Europa Editions, the same publisher as Ferrante. Similar sort of length. It's almost the, um, the same story from, from the man's perspective in many ways. It's kind of an abandoned wife, a, a husband who's left the family. Um, and a, a very similar piece, definitely a companion piece to that book that is well worth digging out. And if you're interested in doing some deep Googling of their names and identities, many things can be um, at least speculated on with some certainty. But I will leave that to the readers to pursue or the listeners to pursue. Um, do you believe any of the candidates, for those who don't know, Elena Ferrante goes by a pseudonym and, and people don't actually know who she is i guess but there's a lot of speculation do you do you believe any of the sort of real candidates are probably the actual bona fide i think person? i think that there is a fairly um uh well researched argument that the author who i just mentioned is certainly uh, certainly involved in the process of the writing that is under the name of elena ferrante um but i can't right. say with any more clarity than that but there's Maybe I can send you a link that you can share on the on the podcast. But there was a, a very compelling article on Lit Hub that talks talks about the nature of the identity of the author um, and how much do we need to know, and does that make a difference? But yeah, there were there were some interesting leads to follow if you're a kind of investigative, lean-minded right. reader. It's interesting that she is often lumped in 
that in 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 literature in the last I'd say decade or so, there's been a very big trend to I'd say a web of serious authors who engage in what's called autofiction, which is not nothing new in literature per se, in that many authors have sort of fictionalized their own lives and experiences, but almost a more self-conscious blurring of uh, fiction and biography in a way where, you know, we've talked about the Carl Nausgaard novels that were this huge six volume project of Carl Nausgaard writing about his own life essentially, but clearly some parts are, we don't know what parts are changed and embellished and whatever, but Elena Ferrante and, and ben, ben Lerner's in that camp as well. A lot, a lot of Ben Lerner's stuff is sort of highly autobiographical. But Elena Ferrante sort of put in that camp, which is funny considering we don't quite know exactly who she is. But she's touted yeah. as also, oh, she writes about her own life from, we know she's from Naples. And, yeah, it's funny because yeah. like now Scott, he'll go do a reading and it is obviously it's him and he's embodying it and yeah the voice matches what he's saying and yeah the biographical details all do kind of line up as much as he might embellish the emotions um yeah that's, that's a very good point why does that get to be autofiction if we don't have any idea who this person is yeah it's just we just know she always writes about naples so everyone just assumes she had a rough upbringing in naples probably not even to... italian <laughs> um What's your uh, what's your view on that when the the sort of debate about whether that is classed as fiction literature or not? Is it do you think it matters? Do you still see it as in the fiction category and that okay, well we see, you know, does it make a difference to you, say, if what Nausgaard is doing is transcribing entire scenes from his life, which I contend is unlikely given that someone's not going to have a vivid memory of six volumes worth of their own life and conversations that happened when they were eight years old. But, you know, do you think it matters whether what he's doing is transcribing his own life or slightly fictionalizing his own life in terms of classifying that from memoir to it's fiction, but it's autofiction? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I care at all, really, because that definition of whether it's fictional, where does that really have any... Um, like clout it's printed on the back of the book so you have an idea of what you're picking up and it helps you navigate your way around Waterstones or Barnes and Noble or something but does does it matter beyond that I, I don't know what those categories actually count for really beyond that maybe for literary prizes but who's involved in those it's yeah I, I don't think it matters if they're not pertaining to be it would be maybe more harmful if they were pertaining to be facts right but if they're pertaining to be yeah. fiction then it will what's of any consequence at all if it was claiming to be i don't know these events happen to me and there are i don't know legal or criminal ramifications because of how my husband treated me or something then that would be a very different thing but if they're dressed up as fiction i suppose then that in of itself removes any real world consequence um in the case of Nelson, he was sued by his family, but um, for fictionalizing or at least telling a story. So that, in many ways, may be. Well, yeah, I don't know because he used real names. I guess makes it harmful for the people involved. But if you're asking as a reader, as a reader of something, I'm not. I'm not bothered by that really. If that line's blurred or not, I know that if there's 
just putting a story on paper immediately becomes some level of artifice, right? It was mm. you put a camera in front of someone and they tell you the earnest truth about everything they've done. There's still a level of artifice where there's a camera involved and, you know, there's already a level of remove. So um, to think that, yeah, it's always oh, been adulterated and that's a bit naughty. Well, yeah, any work of even recording anything is an adulteration of something. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so no, I'm, I'm not bothered. I like it as a genre. They do, they never read like diaries. I think that I've read you know the diaries of a politician or something, and they feel really diaristic. And on X day, I did X, and the novels we're talking about here don't feel like that. They have real narrative pull and flow. Um, they're not for everyone, but I find them very gripping. And there is definitely a lot of creativity involved in making them pull you along in that way. Yeah. And you are right. Almost when you once you start turning anything into a narrative, and it it has this level of remove from like reality. Once you're stripping out the the bits you want to tell as a story, you know, mm. if I start the act of omission, right? Yeah, it's in yeah. Of trouble. You're kind of taking out a ton of things and deciding what to focus on and what story within your story matters. And yeah, so uh, no, I I kind of I I think probably. I think more than people think like parts of the Nausgaard volumes are invention, but I think mm. they feel so direct that I think in some ways people take them more as direct transcriptions yeah. than they probably are, but there's probably a lot of I think it's just, it may, maybe makes certain readers uncomfortable, right? Because as a child, your understanding of a novel is something completely made up. So it's like, this magical world where everyone's purple and it's all crazy. It's not taken from my life. It's just these fantastical stories. And yeah, as they become more and more relatably real and those lines blur, then it can become more difficult. Maybe it's like, oh, it's about his difficult relationship with his father. Oh, I could relate to that. Whatever, you know, those things. Yeah. Maybe make, by writing about himself, he makes you think about your own life. Uh, and that's quite an impressive act of yeah um have you george switching subjects have you watched bo burnham's inside yet i haven't no uh, it's on my list to watch um is it is it really good is it mental i i really enjoyed it, it it's sort of become a bit of a like cultural touchstone for the pandemic in a lot of people's eyes like it's because it's so well it's essentially so linked to the situation of literally being trapped in your own home. Um, I think what works really well about it, I, I really enjoyed it, by the way, that's my, that's my review of it is well worth watching. It's a, but it's not really like approaching it as a comedy special is not really, it's, it's more like a, a narrative told through obviously like what Bo Burnham does is like comedy and music and doing songs and doing like silly bits in between. And it's all of that stuff, but put into more like a narrative of, I, I feel like the the thing that works really well of, about it is it's not like it's the COVID special and it's all about, you know, COVID and send up of like pandemic jokes It's actually the word COVID is not used in it at all. And it's not, I don't, the word pandemic isn't using it at all. So it's not, you could equally, because a lot of it is very personal. A lot of it is about his own men, like, you know, deteriorating mental health or struggles with like 
you know, feeling depressed or isolated. So you could almost, without the pandemic, take the whole thing as just an elaborate metaphor for being inside your house because you don't want to go outside and see anyone and working through your own like internal issues. And so that's, that's what I think is really smart about it is that I think it would have been more tedious if it's like after we've all been in lockdown and done all that stuff. And then you watch like someone, it's like someone endlessly sending it up and like, ha ha, wasn't it funny when we all did that? You're just like, I just live this. I don't need someone to like, you know. That's for for Russell Howard to do it. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's for one of those like, hey, let's do the year review. It's like, oh man, fuck that. I don't want to listen to more of that. So so I thought that I thought this was super smart for doing it in a very different way. And like, yeah, I, I see it as actually a genuine piece of, you know, art from the COVID era. If I was getting more pretentious about it, it's like it's like a a piece of cultural art from but do you think it's something then time that he would have wanted to have done at any point in this like a discussion or digression on his mental state and just the fact that everyone else has now been through the process of being locked away that it made it more relatable for an audience whereas if covid hadn't happened and it had released something along these lines it would have fallen flat or yeah so it's a really good question because i it would be such a weird thing to have been released if it didn't, if COVID mm. didn't happen. Yeah. It's like, would this suddenly feel really claustrophobic and bizarre that someone essentially uses a, a room for a stand up set and you'd be like, why did they make this choice? But yeah, it's like in the whole context, it's like, oh, of course, he couldn't have gone and done this special and uh, he made something completely different instead. So, so yeah, but it, but I, yeah, and, and in it, he's often making like, I get like a lot, if you've watched a lot of Bo Burnham, like he he's he's kind of one of these people who is like a child of the internet, who got big on the mm. internet, who was probably the first person you could really say is a comedian who came from YouTube essentially mm. and became a fully fledged mainstream comedian, which I think, and, and his sort of subject, like he did that movie Eighth Grade, his subject has eternally sort of been our changing relationship with like ourself through the medium of these things yeah. like social media, the digital world, what it's like to be a, like a child of the sort of digital era. And this is kind of an extension of that, but there's a lot more he's got like goes to more like dark places of sort of like, you know, just sort of completely feeling alienated and completely feeling like, like, uh, everything's artificial or not having any real relationship with the world in a sort of strange way. But yeah, it's so it, it I, I think people responded to it very strongly because uh, I've seen a lot of like people talking about it, people on YouTube, people writing about it. So I definitely think it, it sort of hit, it hit something for people that really worked. It's, but I, I think it's not, it's not, it's, uh, it goes, it's not like a balls out. Oh, I did a, comedy special and right yeah it's it's more like but that just there even that yeah. phrase comedy special to me is a quite an american phrase but also it's like a category that netflix needs to be able to to put it somewhere in the way that fiction or autofiction or non-fiction is but does it really matter like having that pigeonholed for you by someone who's yeah. collating the work that like does that really matter just watch it and make your own mind up is that yeah. a better attitude yeah exactly like i think like some people are like well is it actually a comedy it's like well no it's got dark stuff it's got funny stuff it's like a piece of it's 
essentially a short film. It's a piece of art right, about, right. you know, it just happens to have like funny songs in it and you can sort of decide. Yeah, it, you could, because you could just call it, oh, it's his new film, short film inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it's a so good I point. find that when, not so much with, without going into the topic of say like trigger warnings or things, but when a film has been, you know, rated R contains and like I feel like sometimes those things become so descriptive and so you know can say contains three chase scenes, two terrible swear words, and some mild peril. And it's like you're getting so like why do you need to be? It's very handholdy, not in the you know warning or being sensitive way, but just in that this is what this thing you're going to see contains. And a lot of the excitement or expectation has been removed just by categorizing it or it, it immediately creates an expectation, right? Oh, it's a comedy special. Well, it wasn't very funny. It was rubbish. But if you didn't have comedy special appended to it, you'd have given it a completely different review. This is his analysis of psychodrama. It would, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be a completely different beast. So the gatekeepers of the categories, whether it's a bookshop or a streaming platform, um, I think they, they really frame expectations. That's a good point. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, but I guess, I guess you see a comedian who's only done those things. That's what you assume you're sort of getting, yeah. but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do take the point. Do um, you, how do you feel about the, the stuff he talks about there? Like you said, he kind of deals with where we're at in a society in that sort of tension between digital lives and our personal lives. How I, I struggle with not wanting to be on social media, but needing to be on social media for my job. And then maybe is that a really kind of bullshit excuse to not step away from it more? Do you feel like you spend too much time using it versus being a creator of content? How do you feel about those sort of tensions? Yeah, I I feel like I, I, I have a, I have a weirdly more positive perspective of social media where I don't, I don't like loathe it the way a lot of people do or have this. I don't think I have like a love hate relationship with it, but I'm kind of in this position where it, it has been a job for a long time. So mm. it's kind of, it's kind of like, that's how I engage with it. I, I try and think if I didn't have to do it for work at all, what would my level of involvement be mm. with it? But, but I, I don't know. Cause I, I see a lot of the good things as well. Like I see a lot of the uh, connections that you can make with like in crazy ways with certain people you'd never be able to interact with. Or just like doing this YouTube channel, it's like, oh, I can make a video and sort of an algorithm will just do its work and put it in front of people, which is obviously from just an individual creator's perspective, it's mm -hmm. kind of like, that on its own is kind of a dream, right? That you can make your work, just post it and you don't have to do more to like get it out there. It's like, oh, people are going to suddenly just bump into your video out of millions of people. Uh, well, billions on YouTube. So that's, I think from that perspective, I feel like the, I know it's a bit like sort of tech utopian-y, but like, I feel like the individual creator has sort of come out winning in a way that maybe they weren't in previous eras where they just had all these gatekeepers and if people didn't want you to be shown anywhere you wouldn't be shown and and so that stuff I think is all really cool and it just makes for this weird idiosyncratic stuff that people can make I think sadly there is a kind of effect where everyone 
gets puts on a personality because they think this is what people are going to respond to and the everything can become a bit sanitized and everyone starts copying each other and there can be this sort of anodyne repetitiveness to everything you get online and you get like your fairy like the fairy lights the fairy i don't have fairy lights (laughs) there's one lamp um yeah and 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 you can just get i think the glut the 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 oncoming constant uh constant deluge of stuff can just get very overwhelming and you just feel like you never have a moment i think that's the thing a lot of people just get exhausted and don't really know why and it can be just that there's just so much stuff coming at you everywhere all the time and you feel like you need to take lots in and there's always stuff you haven't watched and you want to see that and i want to you know they've made this they've posted this they're posting three times a day and i'm not and what is am i doing enough especially if you work in it that that is an anxiety that comes from working in it is that you never feel like you're doing enough and that's why creators get burnt out so yeah i, I don't know but on the sort of bigger broader like what's it doing to yeah, just more, more individual as a, consumer, as a personal user like i know as a creator there's like a, a line bo burnham says in that special about like he's sort of telling a joke but he's saying like oh he's saying like maybe the flattening of the entire human experience, subjective human experience to a mindless exchange of value. Uh, and he says, for the sake of a few like bug-eyed salamanders in Silicon Valley, he's like, maybe that wasn't a very good idea. And he's sort of like, you know, just saying this benefits a few people, but for the rest of people, just exchanges just become like, oh, I did this for more likes or I did this to show something. But I don't I I start to feel a bit more like it's up to the individual like some people have a very toxic relationship with it and some people do seem to really enjoy using all these things and having fun with them and don't take them too seriously so in some ways I do feel like a, a quite a boring lesson of like maybe it's up to like like you to sort of develop a healthy relationship and expectations with it but is that is that me being naive about like the effect these things have on us with the pressure? Well, maybe I'm not saying yeah you're being naive like as in I know better. But, like you wouldn't say that to a like a drug user right or like an addict of some other you know dam- damaging vice I suppose like oh well just create better better. Yeah, but d- like when I see people, so some people have like compare it to like the new smoking right or something like it's just an addictive machine or gambling. But like, well, you, yeah. What what do you see it as when you're consuming it? Do you feel like I've got to get off Instagram because it's just like poison for my brain? Do you feel like it's wasting your time or just like yeah, most most of the time I do. I feel guilty. I feel guilty for using it um, right. because most of it is pretty vacuous. I think. Um, yeah, I I do. I feel bad and I feel weak <laughs> when I just sort of you know, reach for my phone and kind of brain dead scroll because I've been conditioned by other people to do that. Um, mm. So I don't, I don't like that about myself as a kind of user of it. And I've put locks on my, on my phone to make it hard for me to do. Um, yeah, I think, so my wife's been watching this show. She's from Denmark. She's been watching this show that I've not been able to watch because it's, it's Danish and it's not uh, subtitled or translated in English, but it follows, I think, six or seven like blogger you know instagram influencers in copenhagen 
and they are very damaged people um you know posting like 500 instagram stories a day on average and just kind of completely living a different life online versus in reality and it, literally everything is filtered through how it needs to appear and they they're saying that in real life very consciously well i'm doing this so my feed looks perfect and that's yeah. just that's just it's terrible it's a terrible waste of time and your life right to just be sharing it for yeah, what what, what do they want out of it do they make a do you say they make a living from it or? i don't think they make a i don't think they make a living maybe they get a few bits and you know some free yeah. clothes and stuff i'm not sure um but I, th- I think that is probably representative of a very large percentage of users or you know even somebody uses it to 25 percent the level of their addiction of it is is it probably is a harm probably do you think, a harmful thing do you think those people would have been doing something more useful though i'm not it's saying good, that in a, no, no, in a no, very I like agree. i'm not i'm saying that about myself as well like yeah, it's like, a good question w- yeah. would i be doing something it's like i would love to spend twice as much time reading books well, that but that's it be i think because me. you know you know the things you would be doing i know i i do read a lot and then i know if i'm you know pissing around scrolling at vapid you know every fourth post is an advert anyway it's mm. like well i could have read another book in the week that I, the time accumulated in the week that i've spent scrolling on social media i could have read another book and uh, other than maybe sort of bitchy gossip like oh god did you see that picture of how awful that person looks i, I don't know what else i take take away from it really i don't know that much of it's particularly edifying or um accrues my greatest sense of knowledge and sense of self-worth it usually creates either a kind of weird sense of fomo or yeah brings out the worst in your judgmental side so um yeah my relationship with it is very i think conflicted because i i work for a company that like you share a lot of their i hope quite positive and beneficial content like teaching and learning content with people and that's a very easy way to get it out there so kind of have to be engaged on being on those platforms but there is i I feel a tension in myself with with using them um but is that just me being weak i don't know um i'm not sure but i I think there is a lot of damage done by it it's often just kind of mindless i think if i find myself going down the thread of like you know some youtuber i barely knew about and i hear about some explosive youtube drama start clicking (laughs) through on a getting through like a hole Mm -hmm. a black hole of like finding the whole history of that drama and i'm not even like in i'm not even (laughs) involved but i'm kind of like oh why is there like a million tweets about this youtuber what did they do oh they've just been cancelled what for oh he said that and then i've I've never heard of this YouTuber, but now I'm yeah. invested in their cancellation. Yeah, three hours. I think there is something there, though, that is just, that's the kind of anthropological experience of the moment. And yeah. being aware of that is just being aware of how our culture is. But then just parking, removing yourself from the bigger picture of it, but just going on your personal social media feed out of kind of inane reflex. That's yeah. a, a different thing to what it, like, famous people on youtube are doing because famous people on youtube might as well be famous people on network television for how much coverage they get they probably get more so yeah that's just being abreast of what happens in contemporary society but it's, it's that 
reflex checking of the phone it's it's tragic it's not it's not good if i add up the amount of like i say if i add up the amount of books it could have been that i could have read that's that's troubling that's yeah. that's troubling i oh. think it's just i've been thinking of it in that way more recently and yeah it does make you feel a bit feel a bit sick i but but george the comfort sometimes of popping on my ps5 and putting a Twitch channel on of someone playing video games while I do something else is quite mm-hmm. comfort. It's quite comforting. That's like putting the radio on, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Probably one day that was seen as a horrendous, <laughs> horrendous waste of time. I'm uh, sure it was. Radio. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like. But you're doing something else is the point, right? Yeah. While you're, yeah. while that's on, you're yeah know, even just tidying up or doing the washing yeah, up, or yeah. cooking. But you can't be on Instagram while you know cooking a meal for your children or whatever it is no that's true true enough so so bo burnham you've got a point i think that's the well yeah you know, burnham's got a point yeah not not the first to said it, but um but not the first to have said it but perhaps the most uh musically gifted and uh mm. one of the most creative person who said maybe it. he'll be the last steve <laughs> maybe he'll be the last um but yes, I I definitely highly recommend it. Bo Burnham's Inside. If you haven't watched it, you probably have already. A lot of people have. Probably a big old smash hit on Netflix. But uh, you can go and watch that and watch a, a man dealing with his own inner demons. If this podcast wasn't enough for that for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, all right, mate. How long is your little trip for? We're going to say three weeks. Let's say three weeks. Just a... Just, uh, just a sort of chilled three-week road trip. I don't think it'll be chilled. I think tomorrow I'm driving about twelve hours tomorrow, and that's day one. So an indul- be... an indulgent three-week road trip. Yeah. Who's uh, more really Who's more difficult to be in a car with for long stretches, you or Elizabeth? Well, I'm the only one with a driver's license, so I think I'm fairly essential to the whole operation. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I can keep my head down, get my music on, get the miles under my belt. We've done some long drives together. You always had a nice time. You and me, you mean? Yeah. We yeah, drove we down to France, we've done some drives. We have. I'd say you're a good driving partner. Good driving Thanks partner. Thanks very much. You take, you're attentive to the music. <laughs> That's like key. Chat. Music and air conditioning are the two most important factors. I bet there's times when Elizabeth wants to chat and you're a bit quiet. <laughs> Just lean over and turn the radio up. <laughs> Terrible. Oh man, so you're driving the entire time. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it, we've got we've got breaks kind of built in where we're staying and what we have booked, but like we're going to Chicago, we're spending three days there, so that won't involve any driving. That should break it up nicely. I think as a kind of tourist of the US, that just driving a road in America is an experience in of itself, is my hope. And I think seeing how the continent changes from east to west and back will be, you know, an experience that makes it better than just driving up the M1 in England where not much changes. Yeah, um, it's it's so funny. Know, to oh, there's learn. some mountains, there's a desert. It's interesting. Yeah, the landscape changes so much. That's one of the coolest things about driving through America. It's so funny how they see it to us. Like, I can't be bothered to go up to Liverpool and it's like yeah. a few, a cu- what, like three hours maybe away? Three hours. Four-hour drive, three hours on a train. And that's like, yeah, that's like halfway up the country. And like people in America, when you tell them that, 
you're like, oh, I can't be bothered though. It's such a long drive up there. And you're like, how, they're like, how long? Yeah, about four hours. They're like, right. Yeah. I did that to visit my parents over the weekend. Yeah. They'll just do yeah. that as like, I'm driving to my parents on Friday for five hours. We drove down from where we are, you know, kind of middle of Jersey. We drove down to Baltimore in Maryland yesterday. It was about a two and a half hour drive each way, something like that. But when you check out the the big difference between the US and the UK, I would say is that that's, yeah, maybe the equivalent of going to Birmingham from London a little bit further. But if you were to get the train for that same route, it would have taken eight hours because there's no direct trains. And it feels wow. like a route that should have a direct train. Whereas I, I think the UK, it kind of has a really good branch network of getting from city to city. You don't have to change trains once, but you don't have to mess about too much. Whereas yeah, there, is, there aren't too many other options here. Or you just go, okay, we'll fly to Baltimore. And that just seems like a ridiculous thing. So, um, yeah, the road networks here seem to carry a lot more than the train networks in terms of people rather than freight, at least. Yeah, trains in America are a tricky one. As you would know. I did. I did a big old you train big journey. Strip. The Amtrak. I did the Amtrak one uh, years and years ago across, across states. And that was quite, sometimes on the train for like a day, but, uh, the first time I met, I met Amish people on the train, George, like an Amish, an Amish family, like in all the outfit and everything. It was just very strange. And we, we explained to them what England was because (laughs) they, that's true. We said uh, we're from England and they said, well, where's that? Like, what's, why were they on the train? I don't know. I guess I don't know, to be honest. Cheating but, a bit, isn't it? Yeah, it's cheating. Um, just dipping in and out of the 21st century. Yeah, I didn't point my finger. The 19th century, they're <laughs> dipping in and out of there's still a bit much. But yeah, imagine trying to explain England to someone who just doesn't know. <laughs> like, well, it's an island, basically, and it's an old island off the sea. An old island. That's off, what you need to do. Off the ocean. Yeah. Um, we're, we're potentially, we'll be staying at an Amish farm. Uh, on the way back that's something you can do there's lots of Amish farms near where we are in Pennsylvania um, much like staying at Shrewd Farms in the office is how <laughs> I expect the experience to be I don't know if that's insensitive or not but I'm sure they, they do a lovely breakfast as far as I can tell um, that's going to be great I want to hear about that I doubt the Wi-Fi connection there will be very good so that, that might be a good place for a digital detox the Amish podcasting team. <laughs> There's a loophole there. There's a whole open market there, surely. For sure, sure. Well, big shout out to our Amish listeners. Yeah, please do subscribe, guys. Um, both of you. Uh, <laughs> well, should we? Do we need to wrap up there? Do you? Do you have to toddle off? Yeah, I've got. I've got stuff to do. All right, mate. Um, well. I uh, it's been a pleasure to see you on Zoom. It's been lovely. Let's um, let's try and check in. Maybe while I'm on route, or uh, as soon as I get back, and um, yeah, we'll keep in touch. That'll be lovely. Um, all right, guys, uh, give us a little subscribe. Go and check out the Stephen Hussey YouTube channel, affiliated to this show in its way. Um, not got George's seal of approval, but uh, it's got me. I don't, I don't get a cut. That's the main contention. Um, All right. Well, uh, we'll see y'all very soon and catch up with George on his travels. Bye-bye. Bye.